Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to Inside F1 with Joe Sayward on Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast in association today with r slash Formula One on Reddit. We're doing an AMA with paddock legend Joe Sayward. But first, let me tell you, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. I'm your host, Richard Spanners, ready the host and producer of Missed Apex Podcast. But we're here to talk to Joe Sayward. And here he is, the man who's been to every Grand Prix since 1998. It's Joe Sayward. Hi, Joe. 1988, please. What did I say? 1998? 98. 98. That's 10 years fewer. I was trying to be generous, Joe. I didn't want everyone to realise just how long uh, you'd been doing it. Well, I'm still very young, you know. I haven't even reached 60 yet. So I've been, um, you know, I've still got a ways to go yet. So are you familiar with the good folk at Reddit and r slash Formula One? What you've told me about them? Yes. So uh, the answer to that is possibly not, but uh, I try to keep up with as much as possible. There are limits to what one can do. A massive thank you to the moderators over at r slash Formula One on Reddit. They organised this AMA and Ask Me Anything, and there were loads and loads of questions. It was fantastic to read, and the moderators have selected the best 10 for me to deliver to Joe. The one that said, is Spanners as annoying in real life, didn't make the cut, Joe, but do feel free to answer that question. I certainly shall later on, yes. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight into the questions. The first question comes from euphonos23 and he says hi joe thanks for doing this ama given your long history with the sport i'd love to hear a bit about how you feel the culture of f1 has changed in this time and also how do you think it stayed the same i mean the first thing that pops to my head is uh, access to drivers and your your relationship with them um yeah i suppose so i mean the thing is it's so completely different to how it used to be when I first started in 88, teams had about 30 or 40 people. You know, now you're up to some of them have got a thousand people. So you knew everybody much better. You, you had more access to drivers. You had more access to team principals. You knew all the race engineers. You knew everybody. Um, nowadays, you don't have that. There are also fewer journalists at that time as well. So um, basically, it's become, I suppose, in that respect, less human. But of course, someone with the experience I have has access um, which a lot of people don't have, other other people don't have, because they don't have those connections going back as long. So, And that helps when new people come into the sport. Um, people say, oh, you, sh- you should talk to Joe because he's been around a long time. And, and you know, you get, you get access with the new people as well, which is quite good, I have to say. Totally spoiled. What's the turnover like? Do you find that you're dealing with new faces every couple of seasons? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> increasingly team principals are like football 
um, managers. You know, they sort of come and go. Uh, you know the longest-standing Formula One team principal at the moment? No. It's Christian Horner. Christian Horner. Wow, he feels like the new boy still. He, he does. And the second longest-serving team principal is Franz Tost. Of the, in fact, the two Red Bull guys are the ones who survived longest because everyone else is coming and going. So in, in the old days, people who were the team principals also were the team owners often. Uh, you know, people like Ken Tyrrell, Frank Williams, uh, Ron Dennis. Uh, and gradually times have changed. And, uh, you know, it's much more corporate nowadays. And, and in that respect, it's, it's not so much fun, I suppose. But at the same time, it's much more interesting, fascinating in terms of the politics, in terms of the intrigue, in terms of the money, all kinds of uh, interesting stuff. And, and despite what people will tell you, and they, they often tell me, um, or at least they think that there aren't any characters left in the sport. Believe me, there are plenty. Uh, it's just a matter of getting them to open up and and trust the media not to rip them into little pieces. Uh, and it's hard to do, but we are trying to do that. So in the olden days, I suppose you might have found a team principal at a nearby pub or even a reserve driver or two. Uh, these days, you know, perhaps you have to book an appointment. I, I guess you're not on Toto's jet sipping Chardonnay after a race. No, I'm not on Toto's jet sipping Chardonnay after a race, but I generally, um, I generally manage to get to most of the team principals one to one in the course of a Grand Prix weekend. It's not always easy. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Uh, Toto is actually the hardest of the lot to deal with because he's got so many things happening. Um, and uh, so, you know, some weekends we we don't get to speak. We usually we speak for a little bit, and it's a question of you know. Look, Anything I need to know? And he goes, yes or no. Sometimes he doesn't always tell me the whole truth. But in that respect, you know, do I need to know this? Um, but I guess if I ask questions like that, I, you know, I, I'm risking getting a daft answer. It's a great question from Euphonos23. I think when he's talking about the culture as well, I can't help but think about you as a journalist and and whether you can trust sources as much anymore and whether that kind of culture and relationship between your sources has changed in the last 30 years? Not really. The sources, the sources are sources. Um, and if they're no good, you throw them away. So um, basically, uh, anyone who tells me a lie just gets forgotten about. It's just not worth dealing with people who tell you lies. Um, so, and, and occasionally somebody will say, why don't you ever talk to me? And I say, well, because you told me a lie. And, and one or two have even said, will you give me another chance? And I've had good relationships with them afterwards. But you know, you've got to, you've got to make, you've got to, oh, that was exciting. Yeah, well, I'll, um, t- I'll tell you why. The official Toro Rosso channel, I think, is actually here and has asked a question. And I was trying to verify who they were. And then it's made that noise. So that's my okay. bad. <laughs> but they've actually just said here, what's your relationship like with Franz Tost asking for a colleague? <laughs> well, uh, we go back a very long time, although Franz probably doesn't remember me. Uh, in the very early days, because he was a uh, Formula 3 driver and he was working for Walter Lechner and I was around the scene of visiting places in Austria. And I remember seeing Franz Tost wandering about in those days. Um, but he's a bit, um, I don't know, how do we say? Uh, he's a bit serious, is our Franz. The other day I said something nice to him about um, being the second longest uh, team principal, actually. That was the conversation we were having. And I said, the remarkable thing is you actually haven't changed that much. And he said, what are you after? Yeah. So, so it is. Uh, he's not always easy to deal with. He has very trenchant views, um, and I don't think he has a lot of time for the press. But you know, that's. He also has a habit of making daft predictions, which I generally tend to make fun of. He always, he's always going to finish sixth in the championship, and never does. But you know, it's um, it's it's one of those things that uh, that uh, journalists do. But to be honest, these days, I, uh, a, f- a little while ago, I read some of the stuff I was writing in the eighties, and it was brutal. Far worse, and nowadays we're far too polite to health and safety in the journalistic world. You know, it's not. I was writing terrible things back in the old days. This person shouldn't be in Formula One. He's a total waste of space. Things like that. Oh, I can't imagine you being curt and short with people these days, Joe. Uh, I, I'm still curt and short sometimes, but generally speaking, the standard of everybody has risen. So there are fewer people to to um, be nasty to, I suppose. Uh, you have to respect them all nowadays, particularly the drivers, because you know, we can say, oh, you know, Lance Stroll's not, not the best driver out there, but Lance Stroll is really good. He's been on the podium in Formula One. So if he is considered to be the worst driver in Formula One, which I think some people think, um, he's really not that bad. If you can get on the podium, you know, you're not bad. So... Um, I think that the level is higher than ever before. If you look how close the gaps are 
and qualifying, with the exception of Williams, of course. Um, but that's not the fault of the drivers, is it? Well, that's an interesting argument. Go to upset Poland. No, let's um, let's have a break from upsetting Poland just for one show, Joe. We need to get more of these questions from the fine commenters over at Reddit r slash formula one you're listening to missed apex podcast me and joe do an inside f1 episode uh, every month or so where joe comes on and gives us a scoop of inside f1 knowledge for our podcasting pleasure the next question comes from you faulty sky and his question is what's the most outrageous story you've ever heard where at the time you thought no this can't be true it's never going to happen that eventually did turn out to be true. I can't help but think about the time, Joe, that I told you that Red Bull were going to Honda and you told me, no way, no way, you said. No, that's not in the league. Um, I think (laughs) the biggest surprise, I think, to be honest, when Lewis Hamilton was going to go off to Mercedes, at the time it sounded like a completely daft thing to do. Uh, And so I think I'd probably say that that was one. Of course, Lewis had had access to all the information about what Mercedes was doing back in the factory, that Nicky in his ear and Ross Braun in his ear. Um, and they convinced him, but we didn't know all that stuff. So it seemed like a crazy thing to do because Mercedes, apart from you know when it was Braun, when they won the world championship, I, I don't mean it unpleasantly, but almost by accident. Um, you know, they had a, a huge advantage for the first half of the season and they, they used it. They won the world championship. But after that, Mercedes team never looked great. And before then, when it was uh, Honda and BAR, Honda and BAR, it had never been particularly good either. So, you know, Lewis leaving McLaren, which was at the time the great big sort of steamroller, seemed a very strange thing to do. But I think as we've been proved uh, with statistics in recent years, it was the right thing to do. So, I mean, that's one of them. I think there are probably others if I think about it, but um, that's the immediate one that comes to mind. Yeah, it wasn't a bad shout, was it, Lewis to Mercedes? How how do you how do you deal with it as a journalist when you obviously get asked your opinion and uh, there's a certain amount of theatre to it when you go on Sky Sports and you have to give an opinion and sitting on the fence and going, well, it might be this, might be that, doesn't always make for the best soundbite. They'll tend to pick on the one where you say, ah, there's no way Lewis Hamilton would go to go to Mercedes. Then when people come back at you, how does how does that feel as somebody in the spotlight? Well, you, you obviously makes you feel like a complete idiot doesn't it but uh, the fact is that what I try to do is to avoid making mistakes in other words you don't guess so I try to have enough information to know that I'm not guessing now I've had an interesting um, situation in recent months with the British Grand Prix at Silverstone fake news Joe um, fake news well that's, that's at one point they did call it that but of course as as time has shown um it was the right answer. Now, was it signed when I wrote the article? That's a very good question. Was it agreed when I wrote the article? That's different to being signed. I'm absolutely sure it was agreed. Um, now, perhaps it wasn't signed. Perhaps I hadn't done the paperwork. But when I did it, the sourcing I had on it was absolutely uh, 100%, 24 carat. And and I just thought, I didn't even consider the possibility that there would be challenged. And was quite surprised when Silverson rang up and said, Oi, it's not done. I think probably looking back on it now, the problem was that um, they, there was discussion over a three-year and a five-year. That's what we all heard, three years and five years. And it seems like what that meant is it was always going to be a five-year deal. But I think that Silverstone has a three-year exclusivity on the British Grand Prix, which means that London can't start until 2023, because obviously this year's, hang on a minute, this year's, next year's race is the first of the new contract, so 21, 22, 23. So London, if it happens, can start in 24. And uh, and how does that affect your relationships, though? Because uh, it's, it must be a difficult balance between breaking a story and being as journalistic as you can and, say, you know, an organisation going, hey, Joe, look, I know you're sitting on this. I know you've found out, but do us a favour. Keep it under your hat for 10 days. Yeah, we do that sometimes. Um, but... Yeah, you know, it's the games you play and the relationships you have are based on on your relationships with the people. I didn't have any problem with Silverstone people, apart from one of them who was a bit of an ass um, uh, and uh, made some silly silly remarks, which I expect he'll come to regret one day because I just sort of went, I'm not interested in this. But, the, you know, the rest of them were perfectly fine. They came to the Spanish Grand Prix the week after um, after I'd run the story and we got on fine. We had a, we had a, in fact, we had a very fine old time, actually. A couple of drinks may have been involved, you know. 
It's a brave shout, though, to declare fake news to somebody who's been doing your trade for so long, who has the reputation you have when a deal is is all but decided. It was a big shout, wasn't it? It's no wonder they took no, that to but, it down. No, uh, but to be fair to them, and they explained this to me at the time, that they were all in a meeting when the story broke, and it was in the finest editions of Formula One, it was a junior employee. Of course. Did that, and uh, and presumably got punched in the ear as soon as they heard it, because, you know, there was a, a fair old reaction from, not from me, but from other people, mm-hmm. um, sort of saying, this is not the sort of thing you do. So, um, yeah, they removed it quite quickly. But, uh, you know, if it was fake news, if I was making it up, I wouldn't mind. But, you know, I try very hard not to make it up. Um, if And I take and I often take stories that I see on the web that, that need to be debunked and debunk them. You know, we, we're trying to do a job. We're not just trying to get hits. You know, that's or whatever the latest word is um, for hits. But basically, we're trying to tell the story of what's really happening. So it doesn't help. Now, you can get any number of, of people come to read you. But after a while, they stop reading you because it's just trash. Um, and I can think of a number of websites, which I best not name, but who just deal in utter trash and, and silly headlines. And of course, after a while, everyone stops reading them because yeah. they realize it's just rubbish. I just call them Click Farm F1. And there's about three or four that fall into that category. And that just saves time. Uh, for those of you joining our stream for the first time, I'm Spanners, the host and producer of Missed Apex podcast. We talk to Joe every month or so on Inside F1, but we also cover race reviews at 8pm, normally uh, UK time, and the the evening of the race, so you can have our podcast ready for your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. We do a video version here on YouTube, and we also do a podcast version, so search for Missed Apex Podcast on all those platforms. Joe, you are very, very generous when it comes to uh, putting yourself out there and answering questions. Not only do you give up your time for free to come and chat to us on our stream, uh, but you also hold audiences with Joe as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we should try to be more inclusive of the fans. Now, obviously, you can't you can't talk to everybody. So I have little audiences about seven or eight times a year all around the world where people can come and ask me questions. Uh, and have some dinner and uh, have some drinks and it's fun and uh, it's limited in number to the people who can get in and it it is paying because at the end of the day I still have to make a living and and flying around the world at one's own expense in Formula One is not easy these days. And I have been a paying customer before I got an invite to go down there with you to record one of the with one of the shows and it, it was kind of you know it was the price of going to see a show and it was a great evening out in London. I will be completely shot by our Slack group, our listener Slack group uh, by Michael Dustelhoff, who is begging me to ask you if you're going to do a live audience before the Dutch Grand Prix. Guaranteed audience, surely, at the at Zandvoort. Well, I've been asked. I had a vague approach from somebody uh, from Amsterdam saying, "Would I do something?" But I haven't heard back from them, to be honest. So, I've talked to the to the uh, Ziggo guys. They they asked me on occasion if I might do something with them, but that's never come to anything. Uh, I suppose um, I can't speak Dutch, obviously, but um, it seems to me that most people in in Holland or the Netherlands, as we're supposed to say, uh, most people in the Netherlands um, actually speak English. So, uh, yeah, it's possible. I'm happy to do it. If anyone's out there with a good idea, let's do it. And we will definitely get to the the questions from Reddit. We'll get back on track with those. But Leo Fuju has just asked, where do you get tickets for that kind of thing, Joe? So let's just find out. Where's the one-stop shop to find out all things Joe Saywood? Well, I have a thing that's called flatoutpublishing.com. So flat out as in me at the end of a Grand Prix weekend and publishing as in producing books.com. And you can find everything about me there. I do lots of different things, as you can see. Uh, if you go there, uh, I blog um, and a newsletter, industry insider newsletter. And of course, electronic magazine, which comes out faster, faster than um, than poor old spanners can produce that sunday show oh it's close do you know what joe i think it's close between where the yeah, wife... 90 page magazine six hours after the race beat that yeah and his uh, magazine it's all handwritten as well so do go and search for gp plus magazine <laughs> uh, let's get back to these these aren't these questions from reddit thank you very much to the moderators of r slash formula one on reddit who gathered these questions for us we have a question from uh, rufus 418 hi rufus he says hi joe 
What's the biggest story in F1 that no one is talking about enough? Is there something, because obviously, like like we say, Click Farm F1 and its affiliates love to talk about the drama of silly season and things like that. But are, are there any underlying F1 issues that you think people just aren't talking about enough? Not really. The trouble nowadays is that there are so many uh, different kinds of, of, of stories that come popping up and flying in that you know nothing nothing is ever... Well, it's very, very difficult to keep a story quiet for more than a couple of days. And usually when I hear something, uh, you know, if it's a team news, I'll go along to the team and say, we've got about two days. I've heard this. You know, they say, hold on, please hold on. And I'll say, well, we've got two days. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, I get I get uh, buried underneath somebody else picking it up. But, um, you know, you, you haven't got long in this day and age. So are there any massive underlying issues? Not really. I think the one... One subject which I find quite interesting is still a bit early, but I want to know who the next FIA president is going to be because that's an important position um, for the future of the sport. I think commercially the sport's doing okay. I just think we need to make sure that we have the right kind of leadership at the federation to to take a little bit more interest in the sport and a little bit less interest in zebra crossings. So it's currently Jean Tot. Is he? Is. is there a an end date to his reign? There is indeed, yes. He uh, he will come to an end at the end of, I've got to think about this for a minute, it's 2022. So they are, you know, they should be beginning to line up now because you have to get these alliances. It's very, very political. Um, and at the moment, it seems like Mohammed bin Sulaim of the United Arab Emirates is, is uh, a key player in the game. And uh, the word is that David Richards of of uh, the MSA, or it's got a new name, but I'm hopeless at remembering these things. So Motorsport UK, I think it's called now, which is the British National Sporting Authority. Word is that he might be involved in that, although he says no. But then again, he used to say no always about getting in Formula One too. So, you know, um, we have quite a lot of fun with David over you know, sort of what's the next move. And he keeps surprising us. He went off and started opening hotels in Cornwall not long ago. Okay, so that gentleman aside, if you could choose, if you could install, say, a triumvirate of people to go in and be the stewards of F1, who who would you choose? Well, that's three different questions there, I think. Um, the stewards in F1, I wouldn't I wouldn't change the system. Oh, no, have. sorry. I meant to have stewardship of F1, not not the... Uh, I think David Richards would be really good. To be honest, he's got he's got very good qualifications. He's done lots of different jobs in the sport. It's not just Formula One. The FIA presidency is all about other sports as well. And David was very big in rallying, for example. He's done sports car racing. He's done Formula One. He's done touring cars. So he has a background in all of these things and understa- understanding of what is needed to do it. So I think he'd be a very good person. Um, beyond that, um, there tend to be – it's a kind of weird role because you don't get paid. So you have to be rich fundamentally. Oh, really? Be, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So it's, I can't. There's no good me campaigning to be president of the FIA because I'd run out of money in the first ten minutes. Well, know, so. we could crowdsource it, Joe. We could do yeah. like a Kickstarter. <laughs> I don't, also don't want to be president of the FIA. You have to work rather hard, I think. So there we are. Fantastic. Let's go to let's go to another question then. Uh, we, I think this does go towards the silly season. Best username so far. This question is from. F1, FE, GP, 2B, TCC. I bet that's got some really clever meaning that I can't pick up on. Uh, but he or she asks, have you heard any credible rumours about the upcoming silly season that you believe to be true? Do you think that Haas will replace Grosjean with Ocon mid-season as the recent rumour suggests? I knew it wouldn't take long before we got onto the Grosjean question. Although I think I might have figured this out, Joe. You know that they are moving Grosjean to the Australia spec, or they did do in Britain, and they're keeping him on it. I think they've just realised that it's not worth breaking new wings and new aero parts on Grosjean's current car, and they happen to have some old parts left over from the beginning of the season, and so they're just using up the old parts and, and, and saving all the new ones for Magnussen. Very sneaky, has I nearly didn't notice. I don't believe a word of that, but it's a nice idea, I suppose. Um... What's going to happen? I don't think they'll get rid of Grosjean before the end of the season unless he does something completely silly like crashing into Magnussen again. Um, and there's a limit, obviously. To, the, the trouble is, if you get rid of somebody, you've got to have somebody as good as or better to replace them. So, uh, and there's, I saw some stories about uh, Fittipaldi, whichever Fittipaldi it is this week, the new one, um, but he doesn't have a super license, so he can't have a job. So, well, everyone's saying Ocon, Joe. 
is put Ocon's not going to go there. Pray tell why. Because he's waiting on a Mercedes-Benz drive. He doesn't want to waste his time at Haas. I would think that uh, it's much more likely that if I was a gambling man, I'd say that at the end of the season, Nico Hulkenberg will go to Haas, uh, replacing Grosjean. And I think that Ocon will get a drive with Renault. Oh, that's interesting because our friend, our mutual friend now, Matthew Carter, ex-Lotus CEO, said that he had decent sources that uh, that the deal was pretty much done with Ocon to replace Bottas in 2020. Yeah, I spoke to his source <laughs> and they laughed and said, did you say that? Okay, yeah. So no, I don't think so. I think wow. the, the aim would be to do that. Maybe there's a little bit of uh, lost in translation going on there, but I don't think there's any deal done. And I'm not seeing Valtteri Bottas looking particularly worried about his future at the moment. So so uh, we think Hulkenberg to Haas, Grosjean just out. It's a shame for Grosjean though, because if you he, talk... He's had, more... he's, he's had an awful lot of chances. You know, remember he, he came in with Renault, went out because he was too... Um, all over the shop, came back in again. You know, so he's he's had a lot of opportunities. He's quick. There's n- nobody doubts that he's that he's fast. The problem is he has great difficulty holding it together. And you know, there've been people like him in the past who've been very fast. Uh, Philippe Alio was another good example a long time ago, but he was the, that same kind of driver who could do incredible incredible laps, but then he would just drop it and smash the thing to bits. So, um, you know, and I think that Roma is yeah. You know, I like Rojan. Rojan, I like Roma. I'm trying to get the, the names not mixed up. Um, he's a very entertaining fellow, and he's you know he's a, he's a very good racing driver. But I just think he's he's he, he's been there long enough now, where where these little wrinkles should be disappearing, and they're not. Now Kevin, Kevin on the other hand, Kevin is is a Viking. Kevin is 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 a fighter, and he's uh, he needs that perhaps tone down that edge a little bit as well. So, you know, um, I think the two together are just a bad combination. They seem to like hitting each other. When you have cars that are working at the same sort of speed, I guess it's inevitable, isn't it? Uh, and we have the moderator from r slash Formula One joining our live stream. And if you ever want to watch any of our shows, they're all live streamed and you can join us in the chat room comments. Just search for Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and click subscribe and the little bell. You'll get a notification every time we go live. Uh, the moderator from r slash Formula One says Hulk and K-Mag in the same team. That's going to be interesting Two highly rated and highly fighty drivers. Well, yeah, that is that is a bit of a problem. And it's a bit like when people say, well, why doesn't Ocon go to Red Bull? It's a bit like having uh, um, Esteban and Max in the same team. That's not going to happen either. So, yeah, I mean, there's a problem there. But, you know, maybe, maybe Haas really does need to find somebody, uh, I think, of a of a level who will, you know, just deliver points. And I think that the Hulk is really good at delivering points. He's never had a podium, bless him. He deserves it. He's he's much better driver than people think. Um, but I think that just as Renault needs to step up to another level with the drivers in order to improve, I think that Haas needs to pick up somebody a little bit you know, nearer the front, if you like. And Ocon is, you know, right now he's out of the game, but Ocon has clearly got... You know, he's a class act, so one of the factories is going to be after him one way or the other. It's just it's just misfortune, in fact, that he's not in a car this year. He should be. Um, it's misfortune and the fact that the Strolls bought um, Force India and turned it into racing points. So, you know, that that really is where Esteban should be this year, just, fin- you know, finessing his uh, education as a Formula 1 driver. Uh, well, since Ocon was part of the question, I would fear for Ocon if he was to partner Lance Stroll. In fact, I would fear for any driver who's partnering Lance Stroll once Lance Stroll starts performing, if he improves. Is that is that a valid fear? Can another driver prosper uh, over at that team that is clearly, in my mind, set up for the betterment of Stro- the Strolls and Lance Stroll in particular? Well, you can't run teams for one driver. I mean, you could 20 years ago. But you can't do it nowadays. It's it, it's ridiculous because you'll end up with no driver willing to drive for you. So uh, I think that, that Racing Point and that Lawrence Stroll, Lance's father, understand that you've got to be fair and you've got to find ways to make Lance better. And, they, you know, they've I believe they've got Juan Pablo Montoya come in to uh, give him some lessons as to what to do. And I think he's learning a lot from Sergio Perez. But... You know, they can't really afford to favour 
um, the boss's boy because it just doesn't look good. Fantastic. Thanks very much for answering these questions so fantastically, Joe. We've got more from the Reddit AMA. That's a Ask Me Anything with Joe Saywood. More questions that were posted on Reddit at r slash Formula One coming up after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Next question comes from Balls to Break Late 44. And his question for you is, Joe, uh, Helmut Marco has come out and said Sebastian Vettel should leave Ferrari as he doesn't have the full support from the team. But where should he go? Back to Red Bull. Why is Ferrari such a complicated team? And why do they continue to push their drivers out? Will Vettel suffer the same fate as Alonso at Ferrari? I understand there's a few questions there, but it's impossible to ignore that people are starting to really question whether Vettel can survive or even should survive at Ferrari. Well, uh, let's start at the beginning. Helmut Marco is well known for being a stirrer of pots. So basically saying that Sebastian's not happy at Ferrari means that uh, he's just trying to stir things up and cause trouble at Ferrari. It's just another means of fighting the war. Uh, a bit like the other day, they tried to get the tyre rules changed because they couldn't sort them out themselves. Um, so they decided they'd try to get the rules changed and they lost on that one. And then they won on the racetrack. So, you know, um, these are all games that are played and, and Helmut is a player. He, he always knows where to sort of drop the right words in to cause maximum mayhem. Um, is Sebastian, Sebastian looks pretty solid to me, apart from he keeps making mistakes. This is his problem. He knows it uh, and he's trying to fix it. And, um, you know, how long will Ferrari uh, go on putting up with it? An interesting question. Um, who's a better option than Sebastian is? Remember, he is a four-time world champion. One has to one shouldn't knock him too much. You know, you go through bad times, good times, whatever. But he's still a fantastic racing driver. Um, and I think probably um, we've got Charles Leclerc there, who's the next generation. Um, what are the criteria for choosing another one? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But for now, I don't see why Vettel would need to move or would even want to move. And I don't think there's – I really don't think that there's you know much uh, – discord at Ferrari in the way that Marco is talking about. Well, okay. I mean, you're painting quite a positive picture for Sebastian Vettel. If you try and and break that and pull it the other way, Leclerc is catching him in the championship. I think there's only three points behind. And that comes off the back of Leclerc having an engine failure, him adjusting to a new team to start with. Let's say we start getting towards Mexico and Leclerc has picked up a couple of wins. He's 40 points ahead. And Vettel at the moment, he's not qualifying well. I know he had an issue a couple of races ago, but in Britain, it was just out and out speed. He seems to fall off every time there's wheel-to-wheel contact. So that you've got to think that's going to happen a couple more times in the season. If we get to that kind of situation, come to the end of the season, 
surely that's untenable for him and it hurts him and his legacy. And he, he might not be up for a second season of, of that kind of battering. Well, I think that's the most likely question. You know, if you've been to Ferrari, generally speaking, a lot of people retire from Ferrari. Some people go off into the sort of downward swing, which, you know, is depressing. I mean, Kimmy's done it. And if that's what he wants to do, that's his choice. He likes going racing, doesn't like all the rest of it. But um, I still think that, you know, drivers go through good times and bad times. And I think Sebastian's just going through a particularly bad time at the moment. And he was, you know, he didn't make mistakes in the old days, not not as many in the old days at Red Bull. You know, he just didn't. So why is it that he's doing it now? Well, I mean, that's the second part of uh, Balls to Break Late 44's question. Why is Ferrari such a complicated team? Is there is there a messiah complex at Ferrari where, the, where you're either the second coming of, of Fangio or you're just out on your ear? No, it's not that. The, the problem at Ferrari... I believe. And if you look at the history of the team, you can see when it's been successful, it's because the team has been confident in itself. And and when it's not confident in itself, uh, it's largely due to the Italian press battering them day after day. And people are paranoid about saying anything, doing anything, taking risks. And so they don't. And this is something I I can't remember exactly where it was, but last year, um, Mercedes screwed up on a tactical call and James Vowles came on the radio and said, it was my fault. Now you'd never ever hear that at Ferrari because that's the kind of confidence you get from being in a team like Mercedes where they support one another and not slash one another's throats. So now some people think this is an Italian, you know, the Borgias had the same kind of, you know, there always seems to be uh, conspiracy theories and, and supposed treachery going on. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've seen so much sort of political infighting going on. But but most of all, it's just reacting to the media. And the media in Italy, because Ferrari is so important to them, they, there's a lot of uh, complete and utter fabrication of stories goes on. There's a, there's a few people writing good stuff about Ferrari, but not very many. Um, and Ferrari are paranoid about it um, for that reason. And also, you know, they, they they went through a very bad phase recently when they just cut off all links with the press completely, which was a disastrous thing to do. So they're in a rebuild mode at the moment. Um, but, you know, they do have this problem over their heads. Now, hopefully Binotto can fix it. And, you know, the last person who truly managed to fix it was uh, uh, Todd, really, Jean Todd. Back in the old days, he took the heat. Um, and, uh, you know, the, nobody worried about what was in the papers in that era. And when that happens, you can be confident, you can build a good team. Is that is that why you think uh, Jean Tart and Ferrari might be keen to bring back refueling? Because that was the, the last time they had some success proper. I think that Jean Todd and Ferrari fell out of bed a very long time ago. And I think you shouldn't read anything into the fact that Jean Todd was at Ferrari before he went to the FIA. Really? Because I think that that is a very common perception. Well, it's a wrong perception then. Well, that's what you're here for, Joe, to clear things up and give us that look inside F1. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Velpun. But first, I think it's only right, Joe, that we uh, give a proper plug to your outlet. You produce a magazine, and, and you, you said it earlier, you might have confused people, an electronic magazine. You produce PDF content, like a newspaper, but that you download to your device. And you do that immediately after after each race and it's it's great it's not just a race report you've got loads of features about the weekend and lots of articles and some great great photography as well yeah i mean it's it's our idea of a modern magazine uh, it's not so modern we started in 2007 um it's pdf it's also flipbook but pdf you can download it have it in your own devices and you can have i think there's now 260 issues of the magazine you have more in your computer it's, you don't need any shelf space it's brilliant you know in the old days when you had uh, magazines that should remain nameless they all took up a load of space and when you moved houses like I said oh my god what am i going to do with that lot and in the end i gave up i gave 20 years of one particular magazine that i used to work for and left it in the local garage in the southwest of France because there was nothing else I could do with it. It weighed too much. It was a ton and a half or something. That's where it started for you, Autosport. It was, yes. I see. Well, I'm going to scroll down since uh, we've got a very pertinent pertinent question uh, in in that regard. And let's see if I can find it. It's basically about getting 
into F1 journalism. There's loads of, of budding uh, journalists out there. There's loads of people who are able to start in the world of what I might call journalism, but you you might not, Joe, uh, as in being able to start in their bedrooms and their garages. But it does give people who don't have traditional journalistic backgrounds just the chance to get going and put some content out there. And I've stalled enough to find the question. It's from electric-sheep, and he says, Hi, Joe. Thanks for doing this AMA. I tell you what, Joe, you are very popular over uh, at Reddit. He says, As a journalism student, and that's a good start, at least he's a journalism student, I'd like to know if you have any advice on how to get started in motorsport journalism when you don't know anyone who's in the business, so no connections. I'd also like to say I'm a huge fan of your work. That's a, a lovely question. Thank you, Electric Sheep. Is it an old boys club, Joe? Is there room for street no. rats like me? So, absolutely not. When I was starting out, it seemed impossible to do the same thing. And I thought, how am I ever going to do it? And the answer is you just got to get off your ass and do it. It's no good going and reporting on races in Darlington or, or Merthyr Tidville. That's not going to help. If you want to be in the international game, you've got to go out there and make it happen. So the, 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 the people who are making it happen, there's a bunch of people who sit at home and think that they're making a reputation for themselves as journalists. They're not. Nobody gives a toss who wrote the articles. They don't care. So, But if you go out to the races, you find a way of getting a pass, you duck and you weave and you do what's necessary. And if you're any good at it, you'll get noticed. And if you get noticed, people will help you. And, you know, um, the, it's not a closed shop. And there's a bunch of people who actually do like the idea of helping young journalists because we've got to have people for the future. And when I was young, people helped me for no reason other than, you know, they wanted to see some young guys coming along. So, and the same happens today. And if you look around, you know, Will Buxton, who's you know now a big cheese in the Formula One group, uh, he started out with a camper van going around Grand Prix, doing what he could. Uh, there's Chris Medland, who's, uh, who's on the Netflix uh, documentary, and Meadows, um, he just went out and did it. And he was, I saw him one day, and I said, have you eaten recently? He said, no. And so take him out for a pizza, feed him. And that's the kind of thing. But, wait, wait a minute. How recently was this? It, it, oh, that was a few years back now. But, it, you know, so it, he's, it, he's that's feeding. what you do. You used to go to races and you'd have no money. And so you couldn't afford to eat. Okay. Just to clarify and, that Chris Medland is eating on his own with his own money now. We just want to clarify that in case there was any. Yes. Oh, Med- Medland is doing very well. Yeah. But, um, you know, these are the kind of things you do. And sometimes you don't even think about it. But, you know, lots of people we've given... Uh, Grand Prix Plus, we've helped a few people, given them articles, given them outlets, you know. Um, and we do what we can if we think they're good. If we don't think they're good, we don't waste any time with them. All but right, if we, it, we, we don't know about them unless they're there. Okay, well, look, Will Buxton is a, just a Goliath in F1 media. Uh, the, the, the Paddock Pass... Steady on, steady on. Goliath is a bit... Low. Oh, if you if you follow on Twitter, he's got a huge following. He's huge yeah, and he popular. Yeah, he does. Yeah. His Paddock... If he's on TV, you see. Ah. Thing is, if you're on TV, you always have a huge Twitter following. If you look at David Croft's Twitter following, it's enormous. But if you're not on TV, you don't. So yeah, that is just the way it is. Well, look, put it this way. He's a hugely popular figure. I'm a big fan because when he was on TV doing that paddock pass stuff, his pieces to camera were like were like uh, monologues. You know, it, it was less reporting and more performance art. I think he does something unique in F1 journalism. What was he like as a kid? I'd love to know. What was he like as a kid in his camper van <coughs> asking Uncle uh, Joe for help? Actually, the very first time I think I, I met uh, Will, um, he I got, got a message saying, would I give him some advice as to how to become a journalist? And I said, well, yeah. He said, can we meet up when I was in England? And I said, well, I'm on holiday with my son, really, and it's time off. But, okay, if you don't mind coming to the seaside. Um, and Will came to the seaside on the train, and we, we happily dug sandcastles together, and I told him how to become a Formula One journalist. It's actually a true story, weird though that may seem. Okay, so what's the number one thing we can say to electric underscore sheep? He's, he's got his journalism qualification. He's a big F1 fan. Obviously, he can't just walk in and get accreditation. What does he do? What does he do right now? Well, you, you'd be surprised. Accreditation is a little bit easier than people think. You just need to have a credible outlet. You don't have to have a credible outlet that pays you. You know, you can uh... go along. You can go along to... Uh, a regional newspaper, for example, would say, I'd really like to do a feature about Formula One. Will you get an accreditation for me? And they, if, it, if they're a, a sensible enough organisation, they'll probably get 
accreditation. So you just have to find a way of doing it. I can't give you the answers because I don't know the answers, but that's one way of doing it. I went around all over the place, um, basically working for Autosport for almost no money. We just said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll travel around Europe. I'll go to all these obscure places. I'll do it for 18 months and I starved and I went by train everywhere. And at the end of it, they knew who I was. They knew that I could write. I had a gap in the magazine. Why don't we take him on board? And, and, and it has to be said, the, the only people I've, I've known who are now journalists who I've seen come through are people who've been just willing to go to events and not even necessarily Formula One, just go and do other motorsport. Our very own Chris Stevens ended up writing for Autosport, but he would just go off on his own to do Formula E and then he was willing to cover club racing as well. So, you know, you do have to go out there and make sure you're doing something substantive. And I suppose except that you're not instantly going to become Joe Saywards or... or uh, Will you have to take risks and you have to work hard and you have to suffer a little bit because you have to prove that you're passionate about it because there's a lot of people who think Formula One great lifestyle you know, fantastic wouldn't it be fun to go to all the parties well you know it's not like that but and people who have that attitude don't last very long if they even get there in the first place but uh, the fact is that if you're passionate about it you want to do it and you can find a way of making it happen you can make it happen Oh, I forgot that you lie about not going to F1 parties. Joe will tell you that he's working hard all weekend, but between you and I, he's in every... Where there's glasses clinking, that's where you'll find Joe Sayward. That's what I've heard, Joe. Well, you've heard wrong as usual then. <laughs> We've got another... <laughs> I, have, I have a completely dull life at Grand Prix. I, I do go out on Thursday evenings and quite often on Friday evenings as well. But Saturday evenings and Sunday evenings, I sit in hotels all over the world and I create magazines, which is very dull and i don't sleep enough so um you know i'm a bit grumpy by the time i get around to sunday uh well there you go electric sheep do you even want that lifestyle anyway let's move on there is a question from vilapun who says who in the paddock is the most different persona in front of the camera versus when the cameras are off to start off with though you have to say there's this new generation of drivers coming through that don't seem to differentiate between cameras on and cameras off and it's fantastic to watch yeah no i agree with that i think the younger generation of drivers are getting out of the of the, the sort of terrified sheep model that we've seen over many years i would say probably the most dramatic difference it was always frank williams because frank would be great off the record but put a tape recorder in front of him and it just clammed shut completely so um, I, I would say he was probably the most dramatic difference. It didn't mean he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the, the character that he was. Uh, he just didn't, he just didn't feel relaxed in front of cameras or tape recorders. Oh yeah, tape recorders. Um, I, I'll explain later to the, our audience what tape recorders are. Ask your cool older uncle. Um, and I should clarify, by the way, sorry, dictaphones. Joe's holding up his green notebook. Is that your notebook? No, it's a mobile phone. We all use them nowadays. All oh, right, you know? I didn't know you had a phone. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but of course, that, the other reason to find Joe's blog is his fantastic notebook journals, which are kind of like a travel log, and you can find out all about Joe's travels. I will just clarify that Joe isn't Will Buxton's uncle. I just call him Uncle Joe because I always go, look, Uncle Joe's telling F1 stories. Let's gather, let's gather around a tree. Thank you very much to your question uh, there. Uh, where were we on my list? That was Vilal Pun who asked that question. And, uh, oh, I think you'll like this question, Joe. This will be a good penultimate question from Drastic Explorer. And just to remind you, we are answering questions from Reddit, from r slash Formula One. Go check out those guys. It's a colossal forum with, I think, over half a million subscribers in that subreddit. Drastic Explorer asks, if it was completely left up to Uncle Joe, obviously a regular listener to the show, how would you go about making the F1 calendar? What tracks would you keep and throw out? Money being no object is his question. And also, besides Monaco, what is your most favouritist track? Well, that's about three hours worth of answers. Well, let's just say we're making you the Lord Commander of the F1 calendar. One of the things that that makes it very difficult to do anything with Formula One are the contracts that are in existence. So, for example, Canada has that weekend in June, um, which is necessary for for them to make it a good race, but it kind of messes up any sort of logical calendar. If it was up to me, I think I would would definitely end the year in Australia. Uh, We used to do Japan and Australia at the end of the year, and that was really lovely. 
Um, now, obviously, time zone wise, that doesn't work for TV viewers, etc., etc., etc. So, if I was looking for an equivalent thereof, I'd, I'd like to go to the Caribbean because that works on television and it works for the end of season. Um, nice feeling to it, uh, and in fact. Um, in let me think when that would have been in the 50s i suppose they used to be racing in havana or in uh, uh, the bahamas or whatever and that would be lovely to do something like that at the end of the year rather than abu dhabi which is a little bit um austere shall we say um i think you've got to have some classic tracks you've got to have spa you've got to have monza you've got to have suzuka because they're all absolutely essential uh, for the for the nature of the sport. And they're fantastic tracks, all of them. Silverstone, I think we need to have Silverstone. It's not the Silverstone it used to be. Uh, and if you compare it to, uh, for example, a, a dockside race in London, you'd have to say that a dockside race in London might actually become more popular than Silverstone because you know, taking people to the racing uh, is not as easy as it used to be. You've got to take racing to the people, which is why... Formula E's done okay because um, it goes to places that other championships can't go. But where Formula One has failed is that we haven't sold the green story as well as we should have done um, and be able to go to the same places that Formula E goes to. So I think I'd love to see a race in Paris, if only because it's not far from me to have to travel because my, my nearest race is about six hours drive away, which well, is always a bit yeah, well, a bore. We, we did make you Lord Commander of the Calendar, so obviously it does have to fit around your personal schedule as well. Uh, in that case, uh, a Grand Prix in the Bois de Boulogne in Paris would be perfect. Uh, I think beyond that, um, most of the the races that we have, with one or two exceptions, I, I don't have any particular passion for Sochi. I don't have any particular passion for Baku, to be fair. Uh, China, I've sort of got to like over time. Um, I've no idea about Vietnam. It sounds interesting. Let's give it a try. But we should also be going to places that are good for the sport in terms of of the numbers, you know. So we need to have a second race in China. I think that's a good idea. I think it's it's absolutely essential to expand in the States because that's the world's biggest consumer market and will be for another 30 years at least. So I think we need to do what Liberty is doing in these places. And I'd love to go back to Argentina, except the economy is in a terrible state. But uh, Argentina was always a great race in uh, Buenos Aires, in the Autodromo. Uh, well, the three tracks, you know, that I would want to bring back and, and beg for you as Lord of, uh, of the Calendars to bring back would be uh, Turkey, Istanbul, Korea and India, the Indian Grand Prix. I think Turkey was was okay, if you like Istanbul. Um, you like sitting in traffic for hours on end. It's a terrific place to be. I mean, you know, it is it is a, uh, a super track. There's no question about it. But uh, I don't know if it'll get back onto the calendar ever. Um, and what was the other one you said? Uh, Istanbul, India. Oh, India. Yeah. Well, there we are. Okay. We should we, we should be in India, but uh, not under the terms that we were there before. It was just daft. You know, it was it was just hopeless. They're wildly over bureaucratized, or whatever the word is. Um, they need to lighten up a bit, let people move about more. But you know, it's it's that's it's all the fault of the British. They tell me we left them in with all these red tape to fall over, and they fall over it regularly. So there we go. Some quick fire questions to finish off, Joe. Thank you very much to the moderators at Reddit r slash Formula One for providing these. Uh, let's uh, let's race through these a little bit, Joe. But I would love to get your answers. Uh, hey, Joe says Marco Shendez, love your work. If you could change three things in Formula One to improve from what we have now, what would you change? It can be anything. He says he's giving you carte blanche, error rules, engine rules, rules of engagement, manufacturers, sprinklers. Uh, what do you do? Quick fire. Three things. I'd have a budget cap, much much uh, tougher budget cap, so we get more manufacturers in, because manufacturers bring bring in a lot of technology and a lot of coverage, and they help the sport to be bigger and better. But in order to get them in, we need to have less money spent because it just costs too much. So that's the cost cap. That's one. What are sprinklers? Uh, well, up up the revenues, get the OTT working, which is the future for Formula oh, 1. Oh, F1 TV, that kind of thing. Yeah, yep. yep. F1 TV, when that gets going, that will drive huge amounts of money into the sport. Money, and- money aside, though, Joe, we had a great weekend of, of sport in Britain where we had Wimbledon, uh, British Grand Prix, at the Cricket World Cup final. I'm missing something out, but it was all free to air and the nation just came alive again. Surely, surely free to air has got to be the way forward. 
free to air is the way forward and Liberty are doing it. But you're stuck with Bernie Eccleston's deals left over. So the Sky television deal in the UK is there for five years and there's nothing we can do about it unless Sky want to change it. And they don't, oddly enough. No. You know, it's just the way it is. They've paid a bunch of money and they want to get their money back and make a profit. But it's the wrong way to go. So I think you'll find over time in markets that will not accept pay-per-view because there are markets where, where, where paying for sport is normal. So in the US, I can see a deal going down there with NBC um, to do uh, a, a cable uh, subscription kind of deal over there, which people are used to doing it. So, and, and in lots of younger generation countries, you know, where, where um, the sport isn't sort of established in the old days and had been there ever since kind of stuff. But Britain, you know, that everyone was used to watching it free on BBC Two originally and, you know, afterwards on Channel 4 or whatever. And so they don't like having to pay money. Uh, to watch the sport and you know the british grand prix i think is they have to do that one free to air um i think that's as part of the arrangements but that's it really um and you know this you've got to balance the two things making money and uh, making sure that the sport is healthy in the long term and, and bernie's mob and the cvc capital partners the people who were behind bernie they were just there to make as much money as possible and so they just piled on these deals that didn't make any sense long term and they got the money and walked away. Thanks very much, Joe. Let's get to some more questions from PSV Jasper 99 I'm assuming that's going to be a Dutch listener who says, who are the toughest and easiest drivers you've had to work with over the years? Uh, oh, that's a difficult question because I've worked with quite a lot now, several hundred even. Um the toughest, the toughest, the toughest are the ones who come in very quickly and you don't really get to know in on the way up. It's always good to know them before they come into Formula One. It really helps. So you have someone who just arrives by parachute from nowhere. Um, um, the best example, I think, of that is Jacques Villeneuve, uh, who's really hard to deal with. Uh, now he's an absolute delight to deal with now he's a now he's a broadcaster i have we have great fun really and, and i like jack enormously but when he was a racing driver he was difficult he was uh he was he was basically because he, he was quite shocked when i told him this and he and he said um was i really that bad and i said yeah you were because he was obsessed you know he was obsessed doing the right thing doing the right job didn't want to say the right things and basically didn't bother to talk to anybody he didn't have to so that that was yeah he's not the worst you know there are some who are um just naturally surly others you know you never know what you're going to get from one day to the next but that's enough about nigel um and uh you know there are uh, sometimes also teams are overly protective of their drivers so um it was quite often ferrari drivers in the past some of them have been well um well overprotected so uh but generally speaking drivers are, are pretty interesting people um if you get to know them trouble is it's hard to do that these days Jack Villeneuve, Jack Villeneuve has a, a kind of reputation for just being a bit of a wild maverick and just saying things for the sake of it. Give us some insight, please, if you wouldn't mind, because when he gives those controversial opinions, does he know he's being controversial or is he just being straight? No, he's being, he's being himself. But, you know, that, he does have controversial opinions and sometimes I'm sure there's a little bit of... of uh, a little bit of wind-up in there, but he, by nature he is contrary and... Uh, He'll argue points about things and, you know, he has very strong views about uh, real world things, you know. Mm. Um, and I think he's just one of those people who who is is uh, has opinions that, that, that cause reaction. And that's very good if you're on a TV show. Having, you, know, you want people who, uh, who cause a little bit of controversy and excitement. So, you know, that's that's the kind of person you want. And to answer the other half of PSV Jasper 99's question, uh, easiest drivers, are there any drivers that you really did build like a good bond with, you know, where they'd be like, hey, Joe, and they'd run to you to, to make sure you're the first person to get news or, or to ask no, them questions? No, I mean, you go, you go back over the years and uh, when you grow up with drivers, uh, you come up through the championships with them. You, you tend to build some very decent bonds. And, and uh, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of drivers who I get on really well with. And and, uh, and uh, we don't always sort of rush up and, and kiss and cuddle. But, you know, um, Johnny Herbert's one of my favourites, Mika Hacken. And, uh, you know, just I just wander up to Mika if he rounds, just sort of, you know, punch him in the ribs or whatever, or, or Johnny just sort of kick him up the bottom normally. But, you know, that's that's the way of greeting. And, and we did that when they were around at the time, you know, so... 
Um, with the modern generation, do I do I actually assault any of them on a regular basis? Just physically, physically. Do you physically do you assaulting them? them? Um, let me think now. Uh, I have been known to, yes, yeah. <laughs> Although I did, I did punch Esteban Ocon uh, a year or two ago, and was was my my fist went kadunk. It was like hitting iron when I <laughs> when I punched him in the in the abs. And yeah. he, he was well odd, so I don't I don't mess with him. Yeah, so. warning, similar situation if you try and punch punch my abdomen as well, Joe. Just, I'll, I'll try next time I see you. Just for your warning, a couple of questions left. I have to say to the R slash Formula One community, there were some fantastic questions in there. Uh, these are just the best of them, and Joe has, has given some fantastic answers. Uh, let's finish up with two quickly. East underscore 62687. Oh, catchy, catchy username, that one. Uh, in your opinion, who are the most underrated drivers, current and past, in F1 that deserved more chances? Well, generally speaking, people get what they deserve, with some exceptions. Um, you know, there are some talented drivers who never made it because they, they didn't have the application or the brains or whatever, but they had they had the ability to drive cars fast. But you need a lot more than just the ability to drive cars fast. So um, generally speaking... Uh, people are treated fairly. Now, that doesn't always work, and I'd like to say at this point that singling out Dr. Helmut Marco for destroying more careers than anybody else, um, that some of the Red Bull drivers got a really rough deal uh, being thrown out when they really didn't deserve to be. And, uh, you know, I know it's brutal, and I know that's how he thinks it should be done. But if you look at the actual success rate there, Vettel, is their success over time. Dan Ricciardo, yes, he's another one. Um, Max Verstappen was never really a Red Bull driver. They sort of adopted him because it was a good thing to do. But they threw away people like uh, Tonio Liuzzi and Neil Gianni, and and I could go on forever, you know, Jean-Éric Verne. I mean, there's a whole list of drivers who were really good drivers uh, who they wasted. So I think... I think that you know there are dangers of getting into young driver schemes and Red Bull is the most dangerous. But if you've got no choices, that's what you do. How much of a look at the junior formula do you get? Do you see Formula 2 and Formula 3 drivers coming through? And is there, is there a feeling amongst the paddock that like you can tell who's coming into F1 and who isn't? Yeah, um, up to a point you can, but it's never quite that simple because the jigsaw puzzles go together in odd ways sometimes. But we all, we all, at least sensible people, keep an eye on Formula 3 and Formula 2 to see what's going on. And, you know, that's where you see them beginning to emerge. So uh, at the moment, uh, there's a couple of drivers, a couple of three drivers I quite like the look of in Formula 2, although I think we had an exceptional year in the past. Um, and this year's slightly weaker, but there's Nick DeVries, who's very, very good. Um, and there's a there's a, a Chinese man called Joe, or called Zhu, or Joe, whatever you want to call it. They call him Joe. Everyone calls him Joe. And I think he's been remarkable. So I'm going to go and check him out at some point soon and say hello and say, who are you? What are you doing here? Because one thing Formula One needs is, is a proper, yeah. decent, top-level Chinese driver. That would be brilliant. Chinese national? Chinese resident? Absolutely. Chinese national, Chinese resident, full Chinese, but he speaks English very well, which is extremely unusual because often they don't. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. And thank you to the the moderators over at Reddit and r slash Formula One. Uh, Thank you very much. It's been an enjoyable format. I'm sure we can do this again. Catch up with everything Joe Saywood related by searching for Joe Blogs F1. And you can find his books, such as Fascinating F1 Facts, Volume 1, 2, 3, and 4, Joe? No, 1, 2, and 3 coming soon. Uh, There we go. Uh, You can find details of that at Flat Out Publishing. And you can also subscribe to Joe's magazine, GP Plus magazine, which is great not only for F1 race reviews, but also for related F1 stories and some absolutely fantastic photographer photography. Did we name your photographer earlier? No, we did not. Peter Nygaard from Denmark. Very fine fellow. And if you wanted to look him up, he is at Grand Prix Photo, I believe, dot com. Please stay tuned to Miss Apex Podcast and add us to your podcast player. We do a race review at 8pm live after a Grand Prix, wherever possible. But we do always have your race review ready for your Monday morning commute. You can follow the show on Twitter at Missed Apex F1. We have a lively Facebook group over at Facebook. Search for Missed Apex Podcast. And you can follow me by looking for at Spanners Ready on Twitter. Until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars and glory will that last forever? 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.